the notion that the human body is complex is well granted but what best explains the complexity in the body is design a good explanation of the data at hand well stay tuned for this exciting dive Welcome back to SAF podcast and you know the drill if this is your first time watching or listening the podcast then stay subscribed to be updated on all of our upcoming videos and content and we have some very exciting kind of rolling out for you in the near future so stick around and today i am joined by a very good friend of mine and also of SAF apologetics dr fazal rana first welcome for the very first time to SAF podcast uh, jacob thanks for having me i i'm glad to be with you So let me just give you a quick introduction to who the amazing man who is here with us Fasalana is the vice president of research and apologetics at Reasons to Believe and I'm given to know that you've been at RTB for more than two decades is that right first Yes yeah uh 22 years <laughs> and he's also the author of multiple groundbreaking books such as Who was Adam Creating Life in the Lab The Cells Design and Humans 2.0 He also PhD in chemistry with an emphasis in biochemistry from Ohio University He was also the speaker at our inaugural Iopagus conference on second day and he spoke on the theme of the modern scientific evidence for god i'll be dropping a link in the description to the sessions and the q&a recordings which was an absolute hoot and a half and uh, first you were one of you were the only speaker at the conference who hadn't been featured on the podcast yet so we were very excited back then to bring you on the podcast and here we are we were very, we were very happy that we could make it happen yeah well i was beginning to feel left out <laughs> <laughs> So uh the topic that we're going to look at today now it's something that is right up your alley but there's a lot to cover there's a lot of discussion that goes on in the field there's a lot of hidden assumptions when we get into this topic so uh, first of all let me just try and clear the air a bit um when we you know, we the idea that the human body is complex and that this complexity requires an explanation is that held universally by scientists or are there scientists who think that you know the body is not as complex as we might grant it to be or that this complexity does not require an explanation. Yeah, uh yeah, I like to think of the the concepts of complexity and design as really being kind of I- interacting and related concepts and I can tell you this regardless of one's world view, uh almost everybody that looks at biological systems in general, whether it's the cell or or complex organisms including human beings grants that you know biological systems are not only complex but they also have the appearance of design and so the the ultimate question really is how do we account for that appearance of design right and just for the sake of the podcast it's sort of like a like statutory warning throughout the podcast we're going to distinguish between intelligent design theories and evolutionary theories and what i mean by that is theories that allow for supernatural intervention intervention from god so so those would be like intelligent design theistic evolution evolutionary creation and then on the other side would be purely naturalistic evolutionary theorists who say that there is no supernatural intervention no nothing pure chance so that's what i mean when i when we you know when we and first we talk about intelligent design theories and evolutionary theories so that is a distinction and I, i think that's very important given the way how many people try and work to reconcile intelligent design and evolutionary theoretical theoretical models now uh, one major thing that stands out when we talk about design in the human body is the term uh, perfect design so does the scientific world and does the scientific community use terms like perfect design when talking to or referring to complex structures and if they do use it do they use it in the way that we common um, lay people use it 
Yeah, I mean, most uh, people that would ascribe to evolutionary theory in in the way that you've defined it, where it's strictly materialistic or naturalistic, would uh, acknowledge that biological systems have the appearance of design, but instead of that design being teleological, they argue that it's teleonomic, meaning that the design is the product of evolutionary processes. And and this is really kind of a continuation of the Darwinian revolution. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what Darwin did when he proposed his theory of evolution was strip design and teleology and purpose out of biology, where he argued that mind is really to be replaced by mechanism, where everything mm-hmm. in biology could be explained through mechanistic, materialistic processes. And so even though you might see the word design used by biologists, rarely do they they mean that that design is perfect. Mm. Uh, rather, they argue that that design is, again, uh, produced through evolutionary processes, which they see as being uh, historically contingent, meaning it's predicated on a sequence of chance random events that uh, constrain the evolutionary process. Uh, and so if you could rewind the tape of life and re-evolve life, the outcome would be different every time. It's unguided, it's without direction. And because the process is constrained by its evolutionary history, the argument is that um, that the best evolution can do is take existing designs, co-opt them and modify them, mm-hmm. cobble them together with other right. biological systems to create new designs. So you would not expect biological designs to be perfect, but rather flawed or suboptimal designs that are limited and, and again, maybe even peculiar and odd in their nature because of the constraints of the evolutionary process. Right. And given the way they define na- these naturalistic evolutions, it's no surprise that they would use it in suboptimal terms. But when you and you know the teammates at RTB look at the terms of perfect and good, you don't mean it to take as to mean to lack nothing. You don't give it that meaning to it. And I'm given to understand that the reason because of that is the way you look at Genesis 1, what Genesis 1 points out to you and how the Bible presents design. Can you explain that a bit on that on why you would take to mean it differently? Yeah, you know, and I think it's a really interesting uh, point on your part to connect this conversation about what do we mean by design and biology to the Genesis 1 account, because after each day of creation, God pronounces his work as being good and finally summarizes that the totality of creation is very good. And that word in the original Hebrew is tov, which doesn't mean perfection, but rather means that that what's produced is a quality design, but it's well suited for its intended purposes and that it fits into the rest of the, the creation as it's intended. It, it's, 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 it's playing its particular role. Mm. And so that gives you some freedom, I think, to see designs in biology as being uh, maybe even suboptimal at points if that suboptimality is serving the purpose of achieving an, achieving an overall optimal performance. Yeah, and, and I think that point, that the theological, the philosophical point that underlines there, connects when we look at, for example, the question of problem of evil. Like, why does these things happen? Because they not be the exact thing that we we may anticipate. They not be the perfect outcome, but these serve into a bigger picture. They want to bring out a bigger goal. So, uh, pointing out that was that was quite important in this discussion. And so, uh, I just want to look at two. Uh, design flaws that is that are put out there quite popular ones 
And, uh, you know, when I was looking at these design flaws and I was looking at these design complexities out there, there were like huge gap, like huge quality gap. Um, because one is like so complex to explain away and the other one seems, you know, pretty uh, typical common uh, objections to, to the design. And so the first one that has been, that I found on the article on, on the site Nautilus, uh, it says that the, the pelvis of a woman hasn't changed in the past 200,000 years, which they say is adding insult to injury to the pain of childbirth. And as soon as I read this, my mind immediately just went to Genesis. Um, right. Because we see the passive God says he's going to increase the pain of childbearing and you know, not introduce it for the first time, but rather increase it. What is your response when you heard uh, this particular design flow and what is the connection we see in Genesis? Yeah, you know, and, and uh, the, the, the process of human pregnancy is oftentimes highlighted uh, by people that would argue that the human body has flawed designs and is therefore the product of evolution. And, and as you pointed out, the female pelvis is chief among, you know, those, those features that are highlighted. And in fact, this takes on a little bit of a, of a personal uh, note for me because uh, yesterday, my oldest daughter gave birth to uh, her first son and our 10th grandchild. So, uh, but she had some difficulties with her pregnancy. And so they had to induce the pregnant, you know, induce her labor early, you know, for her health and for the health of the baby. And, and yet, in spite of these complications that happen, really, when you look at human pregnancy, it's, it's an incredibly elegant system that isn't necessarily poorly designed, but rather is confronted with trade-offs. Many times when we, we see systems that people declare to be poorly designed, these are systems that are trying to accomplish multiple objectives. And many times those mm -hmm. objectives are competing with one another. Right. And so anybody that knows anything about engineering knows that in order to produce an overall optimal system, you have to sometimes intentionally sub-optimize aspects of the system in order to serve that intended purpose. Hmm. And so when, when it comes to human beings, what characterizes us in terms of our anatomy is our very large brain. We have right. the largest brain size to body ratio of any organism that exists. And, and so that large brain uh, puts, you know, demands on, on uh, you know, the, the birthing process. And because human beings stand erect, and our pelvises of the similar design of organisms that walk on four legs, in order to be able to accommodate bipedalism, you have to basically narrow uh, the pelvis, and that leads to a more narrow birth canal. Uh, but there are compensating mechanisms in place. For example, uh, most of brain development in humans takes place outside of the womb. So at the time of birth, only 25% of our brain has been fully grown and developed. Also, in our skull, we have these plates uh, at, at the time of birth that are connected by soft tissue that can slide past each other, allowing the large human head to make it through that narrow birth canal. Uh, and so what we I look at is really, uh, this is being, an, which, which is known as the obstetric uh, dilemma, is that it's really balancing two competing objectives. One is hmm. to produce human beings with very large brain sizes, but also to be able to accommodate a, a birthing process. And, and so the, the, the trade-off is essentially, uh, again, that there is pain in, in childbirth, that it can be a difficult uh, process, but the body is designed in such a way to allow 
for that birthing to take place and allow for human beings at the same time to have a very large head. And interestingly enough, a, a few years ago, there was a study done that actually showed there was a genetic link between brain size and the size of the birth canal in women. Uh, that, the, that the genes that controlled the size of the birth canal also controlled uh, brain size or head size. And so women that had larger heads, who most likely would have larger head, children with larger heads, also had larger uh, uh, openings in their pelvis. So there is a genetic link uh, between, again, those two sets of genes so that if brain size increases, pelvis opening, uh, the opening increases as well. So there are these compensatory mechanisms. So instead of seeing this as a flawed design, I see it as an elegant example of a trade-off that allows human beings to reproduce uh, with and, and produce, uh, our, again, our chief feature, which is our large brain size. Wow. I mean, when I was looking at this example, I, you know, this, this is what brand new information, especially about the genes, like this mind-blowing stuff. So when I looked at these, the other example as well, I felt that this first one was going to be much more easier uh, to deal with. But the second one, I think I, I'm really looking forward to see what, what as a biochemist, as a Christian Apple, your response is going to be. Because the second one is very, you know, it's it's straight up our, our sleeves as common people. Because we would look at them, we would go, ah, that would make, make, make sense. So the second design flow that I noted is, um, is, is, this, is the objection of you know, the male nipple. Because yeah. unlike the female counterpart, it serves no purpose. No, there is nothing there to it. And so people would look at that and go say, oh, that is a simple but a very profound objection to intelligent design because it makes absolute sense. Like humans, you know, we evolved and you know, male, female, we dissected somewhere down the evolutionary line to have that sort of a reminder that this, this broken human part. So what is your response going to be for that? Yeah, and first of all, you know, I think it's appropriate to challenge the notion that male nipples serve no function. And we're, we're all adults here, but male nipples actually are uh, conserved for sexual stimulation. So to say that they don't have function actually isn't uh, technically correct. But but let's just grant you know the 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 our you know the um, the objection for a moment. And the way I like to think about this, and let me just step back and, and lay out a principle here. And this actually applies to the whole issue even of the, the, the human pelvis. Because you know there, there are some evolutionary biologists who would argue, look, if a creator was involved, why wouldn't he design human beings with a completely different you know, blueprint so that we could walk erect without having again these constraints on our on our pelvis, you know, on the pelvis that leads to things like the obstetric uh, obstetric dilemma, and you know one of the principles that you see prior to Darwin that biologists were working with is this idea of archetypes. That is, they argued that sh the shared biological features that we see in organisms doesn't reflect an evolutionary history, but rather reflects an archetypical design that exists in the mind of, of God that then is functionally manifested in the created order. Right. And, and so they, they argued that it's remarkable to think that you could take the archetype that exists in the invertebrate anatomy, and it's so versatile that it could be modified to create organisms with a wide range of functional diversity. So people like Sir Richard Owen saw this as the quintessential example of design. Right. Uh, and, and so the question would be, well, why wouldn't God, you know, create differently? Well, th this archetype, again, is an elegant way to design, 
but also it makes biology actually possible as a scientific discipline because hmm. because of the shared designs that organisms have it means if we study one organism that knowledge is generalized in, across uh, a, a, a big swath of biology and so that the the archetype design not only is an elegant way to create but it also allows for uh, again, discoverability. It, it means that mm. biology is designed to be discoverable. So now let's go and apply this to uh, to human reproduction uh, be, because, and, or an embryonic, embryological development, because it's not just simply anatomical and physiological features, I believe, that show our typical designs, but it's also biological processes like embryological development. And so it's really interesting to note that when we look at different organisms uh, that are vertebrates, the embryological development is very similar at different points in the developmental process. And then it bifurcates in different directions to produce different organisms. But what an elegant way to design reproduction is that there's not individual embryological developmental processes, but a single process that can then be varied to produce a wide range of organisms. But that allows to retain, again, core uh, biological features. So in other words, you can't really have biological archetypes if you don't have some kind of archetype manifested in the embryological development process as well, if that makes any sense. Uh, and, and, and so, but it also means that, again, embryology is designed to be discoverable, that it means that embryology is possible as a scientific discipline. So now when it comes to human embryological development, I don't know that many people realize this, but for the first six weeks of our lives as, as embryos, uh, we all are female, right? That's the default position. And then about six weeks into the developmental process, there are genes that are activated on the Y chromosome that initiate uh, developmental programs that make that female uh, embryo male, uh, if again, a Y chromosome is present. So now you can begin to see what's going on here is that there is a core developmental program that then can be modified to produce male and female individuals. Uh, and as a result of that, I would argue that male nipples are simply a, a consequence of that, that, that you know, developmental regime. So even if they don't serve, quote unquote, a, a function, it's, it's, it's not reflecting an elegant design necessarily, but rather a constraint on having a core developmental process that, can, that is then varied to produce, you know, human beings of, you know, male and, and female genders. Wow. Wow. I did not anticipate that, that sort of a, a proper response coming. And, and the point about embryology was, well, I've never, I've never heard about that bit about, of, of, of leading up to six weeks and chromosomes activating in it um, and you, you're not in between like I don't know if people realize this first let me tell you I don't realize most of the things until you say it and I go wow is that really the case so so if, to the audience if you're thinking that this is like way beyond your pay grade what you're hearing will join the club and that's one more reason that you need to get hold of first amazing books out there um, maybe just to note about uh, the bible says that you know that every man comes from a woman I know it talks directly to the creation of Adam and Eve but when you mentioned about the embryology, the six-week bit, um, it just it just stuck to me that I'm not saying that the Bible refers to that. I'm not saying the Bible refers to that embryology, but I could see some sort of a connection there. 
we don't have time to explore that but maybe something that something that we can explore sometime later yeah yeah, yeah. And, and 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 i know that my answers may be a little bit more detailed than than people might like but the point i'm trying to make is that 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 a design framework is robust is hmm. theor- is theoretically robust that there are there's a rationale for why you know we see the features that we see in biological systems that it's these are not ad hoc explanations uh, that are designed to respond to objections, but there's right. a, a, a theoretical framework that's rich and robust that undergirds kind of a design framework. That's really hopefully the larger point that I think I yeah. would want people to walk away with. Yeah. And one thing I realized in, in, in my course, and this is just for the audience, that when you listen to podcasts and stuff, you're going to come across a lot of new information. And some of us might be more inclined to read than listen. So don't feel bad about skipping back 15, 10 seconds to capture the point again. That's normal. That's how everyone listen to podcasts and everyone listen to videos. So make that a habit. So the point that you don't get through a video, you don't get through an episode, but rather you pick up all the information out there. And uh, first I came across uh, Nathan H. Lentz. So he's the author of the book, Human Errors. And in an interview, he noted that humans are not perfect because evolution didn't have to be invoked to adapt to survive you know, hostile environments because we built houses, we built clothes, and so we found these shortcuts to overcome the challenges. And so we didn't have those challenges stay that way. So therefore, we didn't have to invoke evolution. So that's that's what his point is there. And it seemed to be a pretty interesting explanation from an evolutionary standpoint to that notion of why we have these flaws. Uh, what's your thought on that? Yeah, well, you know, uh, this connects back to an earlier question you asked me about uh, the, 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 the narrow you know, female pelvis and the pain and childbirth. Because again, it's the obstetric dilemma is a dilemma because human beings have a very large brain size. We have the largest Mm -hmm. brain size to body mass ratio of any organism that exists. And that large brain size that we have gives us a unique capacity, uh, which is our ability to represent the world with symbols. And and so we're the only creature that has the symbolism where not only can we represent concrete uh, aspects of the world around us with symbols, we also represent abstract ideas with symbols. But moreover, we can manipulate those symbols in our minds, combine them, recombine them, nest them one within another to create these alternative scenarios, these alternative hypotheses about the world that we are are part of. And this ability is... uh, manifested in in the form of open-ended generative language that we possess. Animals communicate, but only human beings have this open-ended language, you know. And and on top of that, it's also manifested in the form of music and art and and, and things like that. But it's our capacity for symbolism that makes possible uh, the development of science, or even in the prior to the development of modern science, what you might want to call maybe proto-science, where we were able to develop an understanding of the world around us, and then out of that understanding, develop technology that allowed human beings to literally migrate to all different parts of the world and thrive in, in very harsh environments. And so what Nathan Lenz sees as this evidence for evolution I see is very powerful evidence, not only for design, but for the, the biblical account of human nature, you know, in, in that, that our ability to, to express ideas symbolically, I believe, is a manifestation of the image of God. And, and, and so think about this. Human beings 
you know, first appear in, you know, really sub-Sahara Africa, in that part of the world, in a, in a relatively, you know, benign environment where there's a, an abundance of resources, and yet we very quickly developed the wherewithal to produce the technology that allowed us to become the dominant species on the planet. And ironically, we are now have such a, a knowledge and understanding of biology that we are in a position where people are looking at using technology to essentially take control of our own evolution, evolving post-human species, or through synthetic biology, evolving novel, non-natural life forms that could serve as a type of technology for us. And so we are the only creature that not only, you know, has developed this kind of sophisticated technology, but has actually uh, is now looking at, in a sense, taking control of evolution. And, 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 and so, yes, indeed, we didn't, you know, there, there may be quote unquote flaws in our body, but, but those flaws or those, and I would rather say limitations hmm. rather than flaws, those limitations are far more overcome and compensated by our very large brain size so that no longer are we predator or, or prey for predators, but that we can hunt and, and, and ward off even the most ferocious predator. And it's because of our large brain size and our cognitive capacity. So I see Nathan Lentz's you know, point is actually uh, really uh, paving the way to make a larger point right. about the truth of Christianity. Right. Yeah. And just to note to the audience, uh, talking about how our bodies design all of that, you need to take a look at the video that came on the BBC channel called The Perfect Human Body, where they, where they created this uh, body that has these different features that they thought would adapt and make us better human bodies. I mean, it's, warning, it's a nightmare thing. Uh, you may get nightmares at night seeing that the synthetic body that was created with weird features and stuff, but you know that makes us think that we are so much better off in the way we are. And uh, so now getting into the topic of the point of the actual points of complexity and actual points of design in the human body, irreducible complexity. And that's, and that's ID proponents say that this is one of the smoking guns for intelligent design. What is so special about the notion of uh, irreducible complexity? Yeah, well, you know, I have a, um, even though I'm very much a, a design proponent, I kind of have a, a bit of a love-hate relationship with the concept of irreducible complexity. Uh, it is, it's true that um, systems that are the product of human designers many times are irreducibly complex. And what's meant by that is that the system com is composed of a number of parts that interact in a, in a precise way to accomplish a purpose. And that if any one of those parts is missing, or even if any one of those parts doesn't interact in a precise way, then that, that system no longer functions. It ceases to function. And so we produce irreducibly complex systems all the time. And biological systems, and particularly biochemical systems, are indeed irreducibly complex. And so that in and of itself is a suggestion, or at least suggestive, that these systems are, are designed or the work of a mind. Now, many ID proponents go one step further, and they argue that irreducibly complex systems cannot be produced through an evolutionary process, through a stepwise evolutionary process. And the argument is that if you through evolution, where you're assembling a complex system in a stepwise manner, those intermediate systems aren't going to have any kind of function uh, because they're, they're incomplete. And therefore, yeah. 
natural selection has nothing to operate on and right. can't select the, these intermediate designs, that evolution would go nowhere. And so they argue that irreducible complexity is, again, evidence that, that, that evolution can't produce these systems, therefore they must be the product of a, of a designer, they must be the work of a, a mind. That's the argument. The, the, the difficulty with that argument is that evolutionary biologists have proposed ways in which irreducibly complex systems could emerge, and it's through a process called co-option, where you have pre-existing systems that are carrying out functions that are distinct from the final system, and that those pre-existing systems can then be co-opted by the evolutionary process and modified to produce another intermediary system that has a different function. And eventually you can wind up producing that system that you interpret as being irreducibly complex, but it actually has this evolutionary history that is characterized by co-option. And so, you know, I think irreducible complexity is a fine uh, quality to use as, as you make a case for design, but I don't think it's the smoking gun that many people claim it to be, because if you frame the argument this way, you know, uh, evolution can't produce irreducibly complex systems. They must be the product of a mind. Biochemistry is an irreducibly complex system. Therefore, it must be the product of a mind. And then an evolutionary biologist comes along and says, well, here's the, a mechanism. It's co-option. The whole argument and the whole case for design unravels. Uh, and so you just have to be aware of it, be, uh, that, that that is a, a limitation of that concept. It's I don't, I don't see it as a, a smoking gum, but I do see irreducible complexity as a helpful concept that at least is suggestive of design, but it doesn't rule out uh, other explanations necessarily. I think, I think the prudent way to approach it would be to say that it's more probable, uh, given irreducible complexity, that this could be the result of design than evolution. I think that, that would be a much more uh, prudent way to look at it. And well, you know, and you also have the issue of burden of proof, because mm -hmm. if you now as an evolutionary biologist are going to say co-option can produce these kind of systems, then you're ob they're obligated to show us mechanistically right. how that happens, not just in a general sense, but specifically for the system that we're focused on. So mm -hmm. it, it, you, you can shift the burden of proof, I think, legitimately to say, OK, then show me how it's one thing to say. Mm -hmm you know, in general terms, this is how it could happen, but you, you have to show specifically how it happened in, in each of these cases for, you know, the argument to be completely undermined. Right. And the other uh, point of intelligent design, the, the complexity in the body that you displayed at the conference, that was just superb. And it, uh, one of my friends who's, who's doing postdoc research, he later uh, recalled to me that that point of the ATP synthesis, we'll just talk about in a minute, uh, was right up his sleeve and it was right up his alley. And he was so excited to see uh, someone point that and talk about it and point towards the intelligent design. What makes ATP synthesis one of, you know, one of maybe one of your favorite uh, presentations to talk about the complexity in the human body? Yeah, well, what, what I like about that, that protein is number one, it's ubiquitous. It's found everywhere in, in biology. Uh, it's found in bacteria and archaea. It's also found in eukaryotic organisms. And it serves a very critical role. It essentially produces ATP, which is the fuel molecule used uh, by, by cells to power their operations. 
And, and so it's ubiquitous. And you could make the case that it's perhaps one of the most important enzyme complexes in that exist in nature hmm. because of its central role in energy harvesting. Uh, interestingly enough, this complex has a, an architecture and an operation that is eerie in terms of its similarity to a man-made, a man-made rotary motor. It's literally an electrically powered rotary motor that operates at near 100% efficiency that turns electrical chemical potential into mechanical energy that then is used to, to generate uh, molecules that store chemical energy. So it's this incredibly elegant system uh, and that the more that we learn about it, the more elegant, the more remarkable it becomes. But it literally it is made up of, of a motor that turns a, a, a rotor that has a cam that interacts with turbines. It has a stator. It literally is a, a machine yeah. in every sense of the word. And 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 the purpose that it comes to fulfill, and this is just stepping into the next point, you know, it it's you know, like you said, and I think and I've seen that natural scientists like naturalistic evolution scientists also use the terminology and you know bring that analogy between that of, of the ATP synthesis and a mechanical motor and that's that's a pretty stark admission to make in the first place but the thing that stood out to me when looking at all these examples of complexity in the design is you know, looking from the sense of uh, species adapting to the environment and from the cells mutating you know all the way and we getting huge species like the whales is how do we explain the conception of the identification of a particular cellular need like at what how does someone who is holding onto a purely naturalistic evolutionary theory explained that at a particular stage, this particular species decided to create ATPs in this, to create the structure within it. How do they come to explain that, you know, not the mere adaptation, people like to throw that general term and say, oh, will be adapted. But the very point that at the cellular level, the species identify that there is need for ribosomes or ATP synthase to meet this particular need and that it would later interact with this particular oxygen or, or, or carbon dioxide in the environment and then it would use that energy to create vitamin C in the bodies and all of these very minute intricacies, like you said, uh, the, uh, the dilemma of the pelvis and the size of the brain. How do, how do naturalistic evolution theorists come to explain all of those that? You know, it's, uh, and just to push the point a bit ahead, you know, it's different to say that we humans decided to, uh, or, or birds wanted to fly and they tried to jump over uh, hills like Richard Dawkins says, and, and they, they eventually caught air. And they, you know, it's a different thing to say when a, you have a full-grown species that reacts to the environment, thinks about in those in those macro sense. But in this very micro sense, how do naturalistic evolution theories come to explain the formation of these cellular functions? Well, in, in this year, you're asking a really, really important and insightful question because, you know, when it comes to something like ATP synthase, which we we just talked about. As I mentioned, it's ubiquitous in, in biology, which means that it's most likely, from an evolutionary perspective, would have been present in what's called the last universal common answer, this very first cell that anchors the evolutionary tree of life. In fact, it may even have been present prior, you know, and again, in evolutionary terms, prior to, to the emergence of LUCA. Well, the same thing is true for basically the core biochemical systems that that are necessary for life to exist. DNA replication, the process of protein synthesis, which includes transcription and translation. Uh, it also would involve the formation of cell membranes and cell walls, as well as uh, energy harvesting pathways. These are all, these are considered to be the core biochemical systems. And they most certainly were already intact in place uh, 
when it, with the last universal common ancestor, right. because these features are universal to living hmm. systems. Uh, uh, now, this is where the problem arises, is because what we're learning about uh, the cell is that in its minimal form, uh, it, it is still so complex that it's beyond imagination how a system like that could emerge all at once. We talked about the idea of irreducible complexity. Well, cells themselves are irreducibly complex in that mm. you've got to have certain core biochemical systems in place and they have to interact. And each of those core systems is in turn made up of a, an ensemble of irreducibly complex systems. So you have kind of a hierarchy of irreducible complexity mm. from individual systems that then are integrated and then are in turn integrated into to, to forming the, the a minimal cell. Uh, now, the, then we couple that that you know recognition with the fact that uh, we have really good evidence that life appeared on Earth as far back as as, as 3.8 billion years ago, maybe even earlier than that. And that the very first cells that appear on Earth are, in, are incredibly complex, biochemically speaking. They are as complex as we imagine the minimum complexity for LUCA, maybe even more complex than that. Well, the problem is, is that once you push life's origin back to 3.8 billion years, you're leaving very little time for, uh, for an original life process. Hmm. Because it, it's unlikely that the Earth could have sustained any type of chemical evolution prior to 4 billion years ago. Right. And so you have an extremely narrow window of time for chemical evolution to happen. We see that the very first life forms appear to be biochemically complex, even though they're single-celled organisms. LUCA looks as if it's incredibly complex. Life's mineral complexity is very complex and it's irreducibly complex. And so you've got this convergence of, of observations that really say there's no time available for evolution to produce these kind of systems, assuming there is there would be pathways to produce them. And so when it comes to the complexity of biochemistry, you don't have the time for it to evolve. Uh, that's that's I think the you know the, the 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 crux of the response is you just don't have time for it to evolve. Right, and I think that strikes right into the point where. You know, in, in the scientific world, we haven't really got a theory that explains the origin of life. You know, there are there is different forms of you know, Darwinian mechanism, modern synthesis, extended evolution synthesis that all try to explain how we evolve later on. But the field of origin of life is still quite pretty blank in time to explain it. And as we as we come to the conclusion of of this wonderful podcast, uh, we looked at you know the flaws that are there, like you said, you know these limitations and these amazing insights of uh, complex design. Now this question actually makes I. Looking back at how you've explained all of this, I think this question makes more sense in sort of a cosmic sense, talking about the fine-tuning of the universe and different parts. But in the human sense, if someone were to weigh on a scale, on one side, the limitations or the flaws of the human body, and on the other side, the complexities, what do you think is going to be the result and how much is one going to win over the other? Well, you know, that, that, that essentially that, that, uh, in, that weight in the balance, I guess, the weighing process and the balance is really very important because, you know, in, in his famous essay, The Panda's Thumb, written by the late evolutionary biologist Stephen Jay Gould, he literally argues that elegant designs in biology really can't be used to make a case for evolution because that's what you would expect a creator to do. But he mm -hmm. argues 
that the scale tips in favor of evolution because of the bad designs or the flawed designs. And, and, and it's for that reason that I devoted an entire chapter to discussing the bad design argument or the counter argument to the design argument in my book, The Cell's Design, because that represents, I think, the greatest challenge to the design argument or so-called bad designs. And we need to be able to develop a response to them. And in, in the bottom line is that there are two concepts that, again, we've already talked about uh, today, but let's just kind of you know codify them. One is that many times what we think to be bad designs are very complex systems that are poorly understood. And that the more that we learn about the systems, the more that we realize they have to be that way. There's a rationale. And if they were different, right. they wouldn't be uh, good systems, good designs. And so bad designs turn into good designs many times with added knowledge or to recognize that maybe the system is complex and it's trying to accomplish multiple objectives that are competing. And so what we see as a bad design is really reflecting a trade-off that's necessary and it's not truly speaking a bad design. So, so to me, I think when you factor in the response that we can bring to the table, you know, for um, for so-called bad designs, I think that actually forces uh, the direction towards uh, the work of a creator, or, or the you know, uh, towards the good designs. And if they're good designs, then it makes sense to think that there's a good designer. I think the key point is that once you've been the point you mentioned about how we dig into these limitations of flow and we see that there's more to it than, than what meets the eye. And also we when we try and weigh the complexity, it's too complex. That, that's what I know. It's not merely five complex designs against 10 flow designs. It's even if it's five, it's they're like too complex to explain. And I think maybe Stephen Jay Gold has has that point. There. I think that's something that where he merits credit. And uh, we've come to the very final end. And maybe we have two minutes left. And this is fan favorite question that I have got to ask you. Um, you already know what I'm going to ask you. You know the, the 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 video clips are out there. The newspapers are out there. It's all there that there is something going on in, in space. There's something that U.S. Navy pilots are coming across. UFO sightings. What are they? There's still explanation going on around there. But it has actually, if just done anything, it's it's that theory that there is extraterrestrial life has gained more traction. It's, it's gained more attention. It's it's becoming more and more closer to being a public view. And as a biochemist who advanced the Christian view that life on Earth is special that we humans are special and speaking about the fine tuning of the universe and the earth, what do you think would be your response to if, if we come to realize that there is extraterrestrial life? Yeah, well, I think first the first point I would make is that uh, there's nothing in Christian theology that, that makes it un, uh, impossible to think that there could very well be extraterrestrial life. If we think about God as a creator, then there's no reason to think that God would limit his creative work to the, the right. earth, that he could very well have created, you know, other places uh, throughout the universe. And, and so, you know, if we discover life out elsewhere, it doesn't necessarily mean it undermines a, a design, the case for design, you know, um, or, or, or anything like that. So, you know, I, I don't think that the, the design argument is intrinsically threatened by the discovery of extraterrestrial life, you know, and, um, you know, in these, you know, these, the fact that there's credibility that's suddenly being granted to many of these UFO sightings is really intriguing. And uh, there's a great book that I would commend 
to your to your audience, and it's called Lights in the Sky and Little Green Men, and it's a a Christian perspective on the UFO phenomena, and it was it's co-authored by Hugh Ross, uh, Ken Samples, and and Mark Clark. And of course, Hugh Ross is an astronomer. Ken Samples is a philosopher, and then uh, Mark Clark is a political scientist who, uh, and they they come together to address the whole UFO phenomena. But what they conclude is that most UFO events are either some kind of um, uh, some kind of natural process that people mistake as being an aircraft, or they may be experimental aircrafts or things like that that people again. Uh, are observing, but they note that there is, seems to be a residual uh, number of UFO sightings that don't find explanation in those two categories. But when you examine the details of what these different phenomena entail, they oftentimes are defying the laws of physics. And so their, their point is that this could very well be pointing to the fact that these are real events, but they may be spiritual in nature. And in fact, they show that there seems to be a connection between uh, demonology and between the, the the UFO phenomena, particularly when people have encounters uh, with with these residual UFOs. And so, th- they argue that that this is essentially um, uh, uh, what we're looking at is essentially a spiritual phenomena. So it's a it's a very interesting hypothesis they propose that does a great job of I think accounting for the facts, recognizing, again, uh, you know, the, the, the fact that as Christians, we realize there is a reality beyond the physical material world. And could these UFO phenomena really be a manifestation of, of, hmm. of you know, demonic activity of, of sorts? Wow, that's, that's very interesting. And I, once again, I'll be dropping uh, the link in the description to the books, uh, all mentioned in the podcast. And uh, just to give an overview of what we've looked at so far is that what I saw immediately stand up is in the Christian perspective, in the Christian worldview, the notions of design and these points of limitations, they get much more meaning because we're, we're looking at a God who's not com- simply creating mere species of life on earth and then leaving us as we are, but there's much more that goes behind it. There's much more that goes into it. The decision that we make, uh, the fall, the, the sin of mankind and the actions that, fall, that contribute towards it, they all connect into how we are created on earth. And the point you said in the beginning about you know, God looking at things and calling it good. They are there to meet a particular criteria, meet a particular goal. And those are best explained when we look at through the lens of the gospel and of the Bible. And so once again, thank you first for joining us on SAFT Podcast. It was an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. My pleasure to join you. Thank you. And once again, our audience, thank you for joining us. And we will catch you in the next one. Until then, take care, stay safe and God bless. To know more about our ministry, visit our website at www.saftapologetics.com. You can also find Saft Apologetics on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Patreon.